Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Melvin. In this episode, I speak with Jennifer Law, PICU nurse turned filmmaker, who creates documentaries to expose the harms of surrogacy and third-party reproductive technology. Jennifer is the founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network and has addressed members of the European Parliament and United Nations on egg and womb trafficking. In making her most recent documentary, Transmission, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender? Jennifer tackles the immense risks to women and children as they lie at the center of big pharma, big fertility, and trans ideology, together forming a seamless machine to exploit human bodies. Jennifer emphasizes the critical role of empowered and creative parents in taking legislative steps to protect children and their parental rights. It was such a pleasure speaking with Jennifer, and I wanted to share uh, before we get into the episode how I met Jennifer. So I was reading a book called Everything Below the Waist, a book written by another Jennifer, Jennifer Block. Uh, and this book mentioned Jennifer Law's work. And uh, through the mention of her work, I binge watched all her documentaries, DM'd her on Instagram, and we ended up meeting up in New York a couple months later. So I am so proud to know Jennifer, and I hope you draw as much from this episode as I did. For those who want more information on the harms of surrogacy and third-party reproductive technology, as well as links to Jennifer's films, I am including all that good stuff in the show notes. And I would encourage you also to go to my website and opt in for the free gender critical and radical feminist resource guide. Within that free resource guide, I have an entire section devoted to the harms of surrogacy and tons of links to Jennifer and many others work covering these topics. Um, I'm here with Jennifer Law, uh, director of the upcoming film Transmission. So Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with me. And I know this, we, we've spoken before about surrogacy and IVF. And I'm just, I want to hear your trajectory. I want to, maybe we should start from the beginning, which is yeah. like, why did you make a film about what's going on with transgenderism and trans ideology? Well, one, I, I like to make movies. I think movies are a great medium for just communicating ideas. And, you know, we're very visual culture, like it or not. Um, people don't like to read books anymore or read articles. And if you can get people to watch a movie, that's a great way to educate people and get people talking about what's going on, what's at stake. And then, you know, as you mentioned, you know, my earlier films were in the space of assisted reproduction, uh, specifically third party, you know, so women donating, selling their eggs, um, men selling their sperm, women renting out their wombs. And so my trajectory was sort of, I hate mission creep. I like to stay in my lane. And so people have recently asked me several times, how did you come to get into the transgender issue? And I said, well, they kind of got into my space. <laughs> so I had to address it, you know, because first it was in couples. 
having babies through high-tech pregnancies, third parties, and then it was single people, single by choice, um, not even maybe infertile, but just single by choice that needed. Then sort of men started having babies. There was a whole men having babies movement, which we know is BF. Men don't have babies. Men rely heavily on women to have babies. Um, and in the case of same-sex male couples, men require eggs from one woman and a womb from another. And then, of course, it bled into trans men and women having babies. Um, and the way that trans men and women having babies is through assisted reproduction and often third-party conception. And I was, before I started all this work, I was a pediatric critical care nurse for a very, very long time. So I've always been interested in kids. And so this film, while it's predominantly focused on the transing debate around children, should children be allowed to medically, surgically transition, it also sort of branches out into the fact that, you know, children before they're asked to trans, before they make the decision or their parents allow them to make the decision or the parents make the decision, that's a whole area we could talk about who's actually consenting here when you're talking about minors. You know, they're often offered fertility preservation. You know, freeze your eggs before you transition to becoming a man. Freeze your sperm before transitioning to becoming a woman. And that, you know, that all bleeds into my area of work and interest in high-tech assisted reproductive pregnancies. What's the youngest you've come across um, either a, a male or a female being advised to quote unquote, preserve their fertility before taking wrong sex hormones? You know, I can't really answer that question because I'm not aware of a particular case I'm only aware that that's the sort of standard practice that these children are offered this. So at what age that happens, um, you know, I would think it would be before they're going to block puberty because blocking mm -hmm. puberty is going to medically induce, you know, menopause in the case of a little girl or, you know, infertility sterilization uh, with a little boy. So I would think it would have to be early on. And, you know, because you're a birth worker that, you know, puberty is a, it's not a one-time point in time for everybody, you know, and we've seen that puberty is being entered into at much younger and younger ages for all kinds of reasons, good and bad, mostly bad, I guess. I guess I can't think of a good reason why kids are going into puberty at eight and nine versus when, you know, I'm much older than you, but for me, it was, you know, most of my girlfriends when I was in elementary and junior high school, it was, you know, 11, 12, 13-ish that we started, you know, menstruating. Um, but now, you know, you'll hear of little girls that are, you know, eight, you know, maybe even younger. That would be the point, though, when they're being offered this, because they're going to consider blocking puberty. Yeah, I hadn't considered that there's a pocket of an industry. It's like a, a exploitation within exploitation. It, right. Like these children are already being exploited and sold a lie that like there is a thing called transition, which implies that you can go from one sex to the other, which we know is totally insane and, and can't happen. So they're being exploited in that sense. And then in addition, they're being targeted by just the. The other subset of pharma, which is the, as you mentioned, like third party reproductive technology. And it's all, of course, right, pharmaceutical companies, but I hadn't considered that this is like a, a exploitation within exploitation. So that's really 
Yeah. Thank you for, for naming that. Preparing for future exploitation. I mean, again, it gets back to the leading of how did I get in this space? You know, the same drug that children are put on are what egg donors and surrogates take, you know, egg donors and surrogates take Lupron, you know, take progesterone, take estrogen, you know, the same drugs are being, you know, people are outraged that little children are being put on Lupron. And I'm like, well, yeah, but we've been putting, you know, healthy women healthy women who don't need to take Lupron on Lupron. And then, you know, big fertility has big pharma, you know, has a patient for life once you medically surgically transition. And then big fertility is waiting in the wings for if, and when you grow up and decide you want to become a parent, big fertility is here to help you. So um, everybody's just kind of waiting for the the money to fall their way. Right. And then we have the plastic surgeons, like getting their, their part, you know, it's, it's so, wow. Yeah. Back to my earlier, you know, work in nursing, you know, what has happened to medicine and what has happened to healthcare? And when I see this is not medicine, this is not healthcare. This is not helping solve a medical, you know, illness, disease, sickness, whatever. Right. So that was that the flag for you when you started hearing about this life-saving medical care for these trans-identified kids? I mean, what was the the tipping point? What were the the red flags for you? Was it Lupron? What, what because of all your experience with you know exposing the harms of the surrogacy industry and and IVF? Was it? Um, you know, I, I can't say that it was an actual flashpoint because it was a gradual evolution for me. As I said, you know, first it was in same-sex couples, started getting in on the big fertility and the men having babies and then trans women. And, and then, you know, the realization that we're doing this to children and, you know, and at that point, children were not in my space because children are not using assisted reproduction to have babies as children. We don't have, you know, eight-year-olds using, you know, if they're, they're, if they're, you know, mature using their eggs to, you know, fertilize a surrogate womb or something. So an eight-year-old can be a mother. Um, but it was this sort of a gradual, and I, that's when I, you know, I remember having a conversation with um, a supporter of my work. And I just said, you know, in this particular space, I said, we need a movie. And then that was at that moment, we just said, okay, you know, damn it, we're going to make a movie and we're going to raise up these issues. And <clears throat> as it relates to children and the exploitation of them. So what was the process like of speaking to the mothers and the detransitioners? How did you, how did you come in contact with these women? Were they contacting you? How did, how did it come together? Yeah. Um, one, you know, I already had my kind of eye on this. So I sort of knew through social media who some of the big voices were that were, um, you know, getting canceled or speaking out. And, you know, so for example, we interviewed Colin Wright in the film and Colin Wright was a very predominant um, evolutionary biologist at an academic appointment who just got, you know, clobbered for daring to say, you know, sex is not a spectrum and there's male and they're female. And that's the predominant, you know, of course there's nuances with you know, minorities in the space of intersectional. I knew Megan Murphy for for a very long time, who's in the film and what happened to her on Twitter for daring to say, sorry, a man is not a woman (laughs) and, you know, banned for life. Um, I relied heavily on a couple of people that were just doing good journalistic work who said, you know, here are some of the voices you should try to reach out to to interview as far as experts, medical experts. And we did interview uh, two people that are in favor of this. Um, so a pediatrician and a woman who practices adolescent psychiatric 
um, you know, medicine and, and sees gender confused children with gender dysphoria. And that was an intentional because, you know, one of the criticisms whenever you make a film um, and certainly past criticisms of my other films, you know, I didn't interview egg donors who had wonderful experiences. I didn't interview happy surrogates who love being surrogates and want to do it again and again and again. So knowing and anticipating that that's sometimes a criticism, um, I intended to, if I could, get those kind of pro voices on camera so, so that, you know, we could say, you know, here's the, the pro side and here's the, the con side. Um, and that, maybe that will be criticized too, um, you know, because some people might be mad that I included the, the pro voices in uh, the film. But, you know, uh, I was committed to getting them on record. And I think it's good for people to hear their arguments because I think they're weak. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I don't I, just have to tell people those people are wrong. I could say, well, listen to what those people say. <laughs> you tell me what do you think. Right. I, I've, so I, you, you kindly shared the, the rough, the rough cut with me and, and I have heard those two women that you're describing speak and it's totally absurd. So I think if anything, it can, I mean, for, for me, they sound in totally insane and absurd. Um, and it's almost, it, it's unbelievable. And I think parents people need to hear the kind of ideology that's being spouted um, not only publicly, but in private. I mean, this kind of, it's emblematic of the approach that they take with their patients, with these children. And so I think, yeah, to let them speak for themselves and for everyone to just kind of sit back and watch, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. It almost, watching it, it almost felt like a, a parody of just... I, I don't know how to describe it. like like it, it was like being an opposite or like a window into opposite world. It's it's yeah. it's so yeah. So I I thought it was great to include it and yeah. and it's a stylistic. I mean, I always remind people that criticize my other films for not including those happy, you know, wonderful experience stories. You know, it's it's a documentary film. It's not journalistic, and a documentary mm -hmm. film documents a story. Um, so it doesn't. It's not. Um, obligated um, to be good, a good documentary film to tell all sides of the story. We hope that that's what we get when we read our newspapers, that we get good journalism that gives us different points of views, but a documentary film. So in this particular documentary film, my story I wanted to document was those voices included in, um, in the larger body of the film. So Right. But in a, and it's so interesting that you would even have to qualify that, like given the sea of propaganda that is pro trans, you know, that any counterpoint like it, it just it, it's it's minimal in, in comparison to the onslaught of propaganda that we see in, in mainstream. Yeah. Even big fertility. If you go to a surrogacy yeah. agency website, you know, right now, you know, you shut off listening to Isabella and Jennifer talk and you hop on over, you won't see a bad story. You'll only see smiling. So I always say to big fertility, well, why don't you tell the other side of the story too? Why don't you have on your website pictures of surrogate mothers and egg donors who've died? or lost their ability to ever have any more children or had to have massive, you know, transfusions because they had, right. you know, hemorrhage and lost their uteruses. Right. You don't do that either. So, you know, 
Right. But there were, we're made to believe that it's some kind of romantic Hallmark story, just like with the trans kid, like finally they're all their authentic selves, or finally this infertile couple gets to have the baby that they've always dreamed of. And, oh, they're going to be such wonderful parents. And, you know, just all of it. It's like the, the Hallmark bubble, it would burst the harm, the Hallmark bubble to post photos of phalloplasties, you know, and dead surrogate mothers on these sites so you know it's the yeah it's the the, i feel like you know those of us are who are working towards exposing the these harms are trying to bring the darkness into the light and it's 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 a hard it's a hard task and i think yeah your your previous films I'll, i'll link them in the show notes have have really like they blew my mind and i know that they've impacted so many women um, and it's, it's really simply by just sharing stories. I love that you included, I love that you interviewed, um, detransitioned women, um, in the documentary. I, I think, yeah, they the, the stories of the detransitioners are just so unbelievable to, to have gone through the machine of the trans, you know, train or you know, I would say to have been abused by the trans train and then to come out on the other side and, and tell the story is pretty, pretty remarkable. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the name of the film and why you why you chose trans? Yeah. Um, so the, the full name of the film is trans two words, transmission, not like transmission in your car transmission. And then the tagline is what's the rush to reassign gender question mark. And honestly, the transmission came about, I was literally sitting on the couch talking with my husband, who's like my, you know, great sounding board, great idea. I mean, he spent his life um, as a marketing guy. So he just, you know, was really good and thinking we were, you know, I was just rattling off some ideas and he said, transmission. And I went, that's it. Because on one hand, it is, um, it is, and we use stylistically throughout the film, this sort of driving, you know, what's driving this agenda? You know, and even the, um, the pediatrician that supports this, you know, she talks about the journey, the gender journey that children are on, how they have a roadmap. So there's sort of this driving, driving. And then the, the what's the rush? Um, and that came back to my years in pediatric nursing, because in the olden days, there wasn't a rush. And it was doctors that were saying, there's no rush here. We can wait and see. We don't have to do anything. Um, you know, maybe we do things like counseling or investigate further on what kind of issues are going on. There's a lot of these children that are gender confused. There's all kinds of issues, whether it be autism, whether it be, you know, um, you know th- things that are going on wrong in the home. You know, the two detransitioners in the film talk about the trauma that they had in their own lives, you know, rape, abuse, um, you know, foster care, you know, just dysfunctional kind of un- unsettling kind of home lives and environments that they were put through. So that was sort of the, you know, we can, we can stop. And when you see in social media, this, this rejection of pausing and stopping, you know, the hysteria around anybody who dares to say, you know, men can't be women or little boys should be put on estrogen. You know, there's just an immediate, you know, you're a transphobe, you're a hater, you're a bigot. So they're driving this, they're driving. So this mission, this mission that the trans people are on is driving uh, as fast as they can drive, um, you know, children, teenagers, young adults um, down this, this path. Mm. 
Yeah, the, the, the rush to reassign gender almost gives them too much, I think gives them too much credit. Like this idea that they're trying to reassign gender, which everybody knows can't be done because gender is just social, like social norms and social ideas. It doesn't actually mean anything, but like the rush, it's like, I often want, like, I'm wondering if you have any, if you feel like you have a clear idea of what these pediatricians and, and gender affirming therapists like actually believe because right. As humans, everybody knows that changing sex is impossible yet. These clinical practitioners seem to be so far down the rabbit hole. Like when you were interviewing the the pediatrician and the gender affirming therapist, did you get the sense that they genuinely believe that these kids would die without this quote unquote treatment or did you hear or see any kind of window for criticism? Like what did, what was your takeaway specifically with those practitioners? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I don't, I, I didn't get the sense because I didn't ask them that they really felt that this was a life and death thing that had to be done. The decision has to be made to do this or else, even though that message is out there. And, and, and some of the parents I interviewed, that was what their pediatricians communicated to them. If you don't affirm your child, if you don't do this, they will commit suicide. Um, so, but from the two experts that I interviewed, they never said that, but they clearly felt that this, this was an appropriate intervention that this was an appropriate solution um, to the child's gender dysphoria. Um, uh, And that, um, you know, to not offer that would not be perhaps proper good medicine. But I do think if you just think of the, the general pediatricians out there, for one, most of them um, just take their cue from their professional associations. And there are professional associations like the American Academy of Pediatrics, for example, um, is, you know, a small group that, you know, from the top down to says, this is our position on, you know, transgender and youth or children. Um, Most busy pediatricians don't have the time to read journal articles, the latest research. Um, you know, they're, they're just busy trying to stay afloat, managing their practices, seeing their kids. So they sort of just take their cue from their professional groups that they're, most of them are members of, you know, most pediatricians are probably members of, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics or the, you know, Pediatric Endocrine Society, which is all in favor of this. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I haven't surveyed all pediatricians in the United States to see how they're running their, their practices, but I think they're just taking their cue from whatever their professional body is saying, this is the new standard of care. If you have a child that comes into your office that is, you know, gender confused, gender dysphoric, rapid onset, gender dysphoria, whatever, you know, this is the, the sort of today's um, standard of care for treatment for these children which I think is sad. And it gets down to, again, what's the rush, you know, right. you know, right. and, and what happens when, um, and, and I saw this, you know, early, before I completely left hospital nursing, you know, 
parents, because um, in my case, I did pediatrics, you know, they, and adults, this happens as adults too, we show up with our doctors, we've done our internet research, we told our doctor what we have, we told our, we tell our doctors what kind of tests we want done, we tell our doctor what kind of prescription we need. Um, you know, I did, you know, um, a short term stint before finally leaving nursing in an emergency room. And oftentimes people came in with just papers they printed out. I need a chest x-ray and I think I have this, and, you know, and, and, and doctors went from being physicians to being um, service providers. And, you know, so I'm wondering how much, because I'm, I'm hearing now just with the little bit of noise we've been making around the film, I'm already starting to hear from parents who've seen the trailer of the film on social media and are like, so thankful I've made this film. Um, I think, you know, parents who are getting swept up in this, this is how we treat this new phenomenon called, you know, gen rapid onset gender dysphoria or, or whatever. Um, so they're, they don't have the tools. They don't feel um, equipped. They don't feel like they have the knowledge base. And so when you have a doctor saying the American pediatric you know, society says this, they're like, well, okay, because they're being told, if you don't do this, your child will commit suicide. Or it will be, you know, dreadful for your child not to get the gender affirming therapy. And I just think that's a perfect storm for all kinds of lifelong regret, which we're seeing in the powerful stories of the detransitioners. I mean, the Kiara Bell case, you know, she's saying, I should not have been offered this. And when you're being offered this, and we see it in big fertility, you know, you've got a doctor there with his white coat on, stethoscope hanging around his neck and all his degrees on his wall, telling you, this is what we can do to help you. You defer to that person. Right. On, on the one hand, I'm all for women being in charge of their healthcare and showing up to those appointments with like, yeah, here are my charts and this is the lab that I want. And I'm pretty confident this is this. And I, you know, on the one hand, like, yeah, that seems really awesome. That's kind of what I, when I was more engaged in like the allopathic world, like I would, I was advising women how and how to do that specifically. But I, I hear what you're saying that, that in the case of like transgenderism, like there is, um, a, a, like a formula that these kids learn, they're trained from these like video, um, YouTube videos and influencer, like literally how to get the hormones to, so you can be your authentic selves, like what to say, scripts. Um, I remember I interviewed uh, Willow, who has her own channel, Waffling Willow. And she said that at the time that she wanted testosterone, it was actually kind of difficult. Uh, and so this is maybe about 10 years ago. So her, the doctor that she saw basically like tricked the insurance company so that she could get access. So it wasn't as easy like 10 years ago, but, um, but I, I hear what you're saying in that, that, yeah, the kids are going in or like, as you mentioned in the emergency, uh, in the emergency rooms, people are coming in and, and the doctors are just kind of like writing, writing scripts. Yeah, and that, I mean, that is a backlash because, you know, in the olden days, medicine was way too paternalistic, you know, doctor mm -hmm. knows best. You didn't ever even think to challenge your doctor. You just like, yes, doctor, yes, doctor. And you comply. Um, and so I am, I am a hundred percent in favor of, you know, being an incredibly informed person. 
in all areas of life. So, you know, but in the case of, you know, healthcare, if you're going to show up at a physician's office, you know, I, I want people to be informed. I want people to do their research. The problem in this space, especially as it relates to children is the the data is, is, really not there because we this hasn't been going on for a long time and we know if you're going to have good data you need to follow and track over long periods of time have good sample sizes and um so you know what people are you know able to google and get is not gonna in many cases really properly inform them if anything it's going to serve them up with um you know this notion that you've got to do this and this is the best interest for your child and you know to not do this you would be a bad parent and put your child in harm's way so i'm just it's it's not like if i was just developed you know just diagnosed with breast cancer there's plenty of good data that i on my own could just go to the internet and start reading on the latest research around you know different types of breast cancer and different types of treatments depending on the stage and you know there's that but in this space being so new um and that's a problem with assisted reproduction too because once you've got these moneyed interests the professionals that are making fistfuls of money have no interest whatsoever in making sure we have good data um because i i've always said <laughs> they know that the data will show that this is risky Right. And that there's unknowns and, you know, you may be the happy egg donor that doesn't have any complications, but you may not be, you're rolling the dice. Um, and the same with our children. We don't know um, the long-term effects of taking a nine or a 10 year old in the case of a little girl, putting her on massive amounts of testosterone for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, some of these adult detransitioners are already saying that they're feeling now you know, the, the consequences of, you know, cross sex, wrong sex hormones for 10, 15 years. Um, so it's experimentation uh, and gets back to informed consent. You know, our parents being told we're experimenting on your child and we right. don't know the long-term effects of this. Um, right. Right. I, I, there was, you remember the doctor in New York at Mount Sinai, he, he performed, I forgot his name. He performed the, um, the castration on a, a 16 year old male. And I watched a video of this, this surgeon, um, talking about the quote unquote vagina that he made for this male, the 16 year old male, uh, or 16 year old at 16 year, years old at the time. And he described it as, um, being able to do it basically function like a regular old vagina, you know? And I, I just, as he was speaking and describing the procedure, I just thought this is your claim to fame. Your claim to fame is performing a castration. And this guy is going to be, is applauded and looked at as the, the trailblazer. Yeah, the trailblazer, the hero. Yeah. The new frontier of medicine, and here we go. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, well, um, and it, it's you know, um, you know, one of the detransitioners in the story, um, who who he did have his testicles removed. But you know, the reason that he had his testicles removed was because he was just being given trouble with the passport agency um he while he was self-identifying as a female he had not done the surgery and so there was this and because of his 
employment, which required him to do a lot of international travel with his work, he would get temporary passports that were only good for a year. And the passport agency would say, you know, you, you eventually have to, you know, surgically transition so that we can give you, um, you know, you're now a female, we can give you a you know permanent passport. I think, why are we tangling up these kind of decisions with, with such a life altering sur- surgery? You know, in order to get a passport to travel, you have to have your testicles removed. And it's just it's mind boggling to me um, that this person had to do that. But versus was happy taking estrogen, dressing as a woman, you know, presenting as a woman, having a woman's name, but had to do the surgery in order to satisfy the US passport, you know, agency. Wow. It's just like the level of just misogyny embedded in all of it is just, it's mind blowing. I just interviewed Genevieve Gluck who went into um, the, like the history of Lupron being used um, to treat the most violent sex offenders, which I had no idea was one of its like original uses. Um, And like you said earlier, like these drugs that have been historically used on women very unscientifically have also been used on sex offenders and we're supposed to think it's perfectly normal to give them to children the same pharmaceuticals i mean the, the fact that you would even have to make a documentary explaining why this is crazy you know like it's i mean thank god you are you know thank god you're bringing you know sanity to this this the insanity that has occurred but i mean it's it's the, the truth is so ugly and I, and i wonder if if just the re, the resistance is just to avoid facing the the pure evil of this i mean uh, and and it's interesting that i think on some level do you, i mean maybe you would disagree but for people to take it seriously we have to talk about children like it's not enough to say that even teens or young adults are being targeted in this. Like we have to talk about like three and four year olds to like drill it into people's minds that like such damage is, is being done. Like, what do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I mean, I I always err on the side of children deserve our utmost vigilance as it relates to care and protection, um, you know, and to keep them as innocent as possible. Um, so for example, like one of the parents in my film said, you know, my, my, her daughter who thinks she's a, a boy has a brother and he's a minor. And she said he would love to be in the film and talk about the impact that this has had on his, his family, his life, you know, having his sister do this. And I said, absolutely not. As a filmmaker, I don't, I don't interview children. I don't include their voices. I, I try to protect their innocence. This is big people stuff for big people to sort out. And it's our responsibility as big people to protect children. Um, so, you know, that's sort of my default is always to protect children. And I think my default is also, um, you know, grounded in just what, how we treated children in, in the hospital. You know, to always protect them, their privacy, their, you know, their best interests. Um, and that that's, um, you know, a, a, something I take very, very seriously. 
Um, now, then, you know, our target audience for this film is parents. And we hope that parents will watch this film and feel I'm better informed. I have the language to speak. I have the questions to ask, to challenge. So when I show up in the doctor's office and my pediatrician says, we need to put your child on puberty blockers, I can say, um, no, we're not going to do that. You know, is there a, you know, some good counseling we can get? You know, look at what's going on in the home or the school life that's causing this child to have these problems. But um, yeah. And, you know, visually, um, we use, because we shot this film 100% during the lockdown, the pandemic, which was a challenge is filmmaking wise. So while we did do quite a few in-person um, interviews, we had to rely on a lot of Zoom interviews like you and I are doing right now to be able to speak to people that were sheltering in place and couldn't have a film crew come into their, you know, their, you know, work life or their home life to do interviews. And we just used a lot of stock footage of children and all the stock footage, I wanna say all of it, and you always get hung up if you say all of it and then somebody finds something, is children from behind. You know, children walking down the street holding hands, little girl walking down the street holding her mom's hand from behind, you know, little boy riding a bicycle um, from behind. Just the sense of protecting them from this big dark thing that wants to devour them. Yeah, it's quite the opposite of uh, what the other side is doing. Um, um, yeah, when I see these moms that are proud of their children and dressing them all up and putting them out there on social media, like their props for a, a big campaign or something, I, don't, I just, I, I cringe. I just think shame on you um, to exploit your own child um, in, this, in this manner. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty gross. I, I, um, uh, Genevieve Gluck, uh, brought to my attention and like, a, there's, there's hundreds of these Amazon books that target adult men, um, who fetishize the idea of becoming a woman and being a little girl specifically. And the people who produce these, you know, kind of PDF type books, or sometimes they're audio books, um, will use like the title will be um, turn your little boy into a girl, but they'll have a photo of an actual little girl. Yeah, it, it, it's so it's so beyond. And I and I, I was I was curious about those stock images that are on those on those um, disgusting um, fetishizing material. Um because while yes, whoever's kid that is knows that they're in some kind of stock library, they don't consent to how it's used. So I, I really appreciate you, you saying that, that you deliberately did not use these children, even the stock images that you chose ones that were um, from behind. I think that's- Yeah, we wanted to portray a sense of innocence, you know, and that right. you know, this, this brief time that we're all on this earth, it's an even briefer time when we, we are privileged to have that innocent, just play, just be kids, you know, not have to worry about the problems of the world. You know, one of the um, uh, images that we show on in this film is a, a picture of John Money, who back in the day was, you know, quite involved in the sexual um, space at John Hopkins. And, you know, he worked with what was then, you know, transsexuals, transvestites. But he was a believer that, you know, a child and an adult 
um, could mutually consent to be together, sexually, romantically, whatever, as long as it was mutual consent. And you think, okay, there's no way a child can mutually consent to that. There's just no way. Um, and if a child mutually consents to that, it's not a mutual, it's a, it's a coercive, it's, you know, there's some kind of horrible traumatic thing that has happened to this child. Um, and we know that there's always been this movement to push the age of consent, you know, so that adult, adults can have sex with younger and younger. Um, and this is part of the, you know, the fetish, the, the dysfunction, the pathology, whatever you want to call it. It's not normal. I'm sorry, it's not normal. And I know people don't like that word normal because normal is really broad. Um, and within normal, there's, a, you know, but it's not normal. Right. I mean, that's why they, they changed it from transsexual to transgender because it doesn't really have a good ring to it a transsexual child but transgender child is a hallmark story right that's why they shifted our it's my understanding that was the intention for the 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 shift in language is interesting like when I talk to the grandmothers of the trans identified kids they haven't been programmed to use words like gender like transgender like they still well, they'll say to me, like, it's insane that people think that my granddaughter is a transsexual. She's nine. That's insane. You know, like they, they really like see the this, the insanity of it all. And, and and yeah, I think like to your point, the, the push to lower the age of consent, like it's they, they've tried to mask it, I think, very um, effectively by taking the word sex out of it altogether. Right. And even even, you know, the the um, the subtitle, the sorry, the, the full title of your film, I think, will obviously it, it translates like everyone's used to the same lexicon of using the word gender, transgender, transgender. Um, so it's going to I think it's really going to um, resonate with so many people watching it. And at what point do we just scream from the rooftops that this has nothing to do with gender at all. And I think your, your film does a great job. Yeah. I love that. It, it will be a, a guidebook for parents to um, make sense of what's happening to them, that they can use it as a resource and feel less isolated and know that it's happening everywhere. Um, I loved the, the scene where, you know, you have all the, the, the mothers of the trans identified kids in, in a room together um, who have just been gaslit over and over by their, their kids, pediatricians and their, sometimes their friends or even their partners, um, just kind of commiserating. And, um, yeah, so I, I really appreciate the, the emphasis on the, the mothers as um, always in all your work. Yeah. Well, and we do have one dad in the film that's dealing with this too. So we, we were happy to include that, you know, it's not just mothers that are struggling with this, but, but dads too. Um, and, and again, that gets back to who we really, our, our primary target audience was. We were trying to speak to parents, mm-hmm. parents who either have kids um, in this space, who have their kids going to school where this is being pushed in the school. So they have, a, maybe they have a daughter that doesn't want to go in the bathroom. If little boys are allowed to go in the bathroom with her, um, you know, parents are serving on school boards, parents are serving on PTA, you know, um, so, you know, parents are, you know, uh, a voting block, if you will, that if we give them the power um, and, and the knowledge and the conviction um, 
you know, they can speak with a very loud voice. They can show up at their school board meetings or their PTA meetings or whatever. They just could be in their, you know, parent support group meetings and just say, not, not on my watch, not on my watch. Right. And so similarly to surrogacy, it's state by state, uh, whether it is legal to administer cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers, and surgeries to minors. Like I know, for example, in Texas, Texas just passed a bill um, in April of 2021, making it illegal for these clinics to even take an appointment, even with a legal guardian present with uh, a minor, which was pretty amazing. Um, so in terms of the legal landscape, what did you learn through the, the making of this film in terms of how parents can protect themselves uh, legally against, against all of this? Well, and again, it is similar to like the state-by-state -state battle on say surrogacy, commercial surrogacy, gestational surrogacy. And, and you know, in Texas, what they, what they have just done, as you described it, is what I would call model legislation that, that other states should say, if we want to get in on this space, um, you know, we can model our, our language of our bill um, as the Texas legislators did. But, you know, again, like surrogacy, if a state has no law, it's silent, which is the case in South Dakota. And South Dakota, I think, has tried to take two attempts at passing a law that would just say, if you're a minor, if you're under 16, you know, you can't, you can't do this. And they've not been successful. Um, but if you, so right now, it's, it's allowed in South Dakota, because there's no law saying it's not allowed. Um, so if a state is silent, which I would bet, um, again, and I, I don't know the, the figures on all 50 states, but I would bet the majority of states have no language because this is a new, new thing. Um, what we've seen, if anything, is a little bit more movement faster on the issue of sports. So states passing, you know, you, know, you must be a biological woman if you're going to compete in women's sports or you know, a biological male, if you want to compete in you know, male sports. So I think there's been more action or activity in a good direction, um, passing those kind of bills. I don't think we've seen a lot like what Texas has done. Um, but again, that would be if, you know, people are listening to this and happen to want to say, what can I do in my state? Um, what can we as a parent group do in our state would be to reach out to your representatives and say, let's look at what Texas did and let's be like Texas in this area um, and pass laws like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it raises the bigger question too, of, you know, what happens when we erode parental rights? I mean, isn't that also what's happening? I mean, the, the state is now the state, not, not now it's something new, but just the state continuing to take ownership of your children like yeah. right, you know that for, for not you affirming your kid from your care even right and 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 for everyone listening this is currently happening in the US it's not just happening to that one guy in Canada or that one mom in New Zealand it's happening here in the US so um i'm going to link that um the texas bill in the show notes uh, yeah i think the yeah. Yeah, the issue, I think, right, we're, we're just still kind of, we've never been in this kind of situation before in the sense. So it's, it, you know, these are, these are bills being drafted from scratch. Yeah. Right. Well, Same with the sports. I mean, we'd even have to defend women's sports and whatnot. So I, yeah, Save Women's Sports has been doing it. They, they've been really 
yeah, um, creating these these templates or as you said, these these kind of model bills. And I do think um, once, you know, again, I, maybe I have way too much hope in this film really reaching the masses and really equipping parents with the right tools and language. Uh, you know, we've already seen parents quite agitated over coronavirus in schools and the requirement of masks of children in schools and the requirement of vaccinations in, in children of schools. Um, and, you know, just for the record, I was a pediatric nurse for a very long time and I'm not an, an anti-vax person. And I understand that people are anti-vax and people are pro-vax, but I can absolutely understand why parents do not want to have their children tested with an emergency use only, you know, vaccine that doesn't have any kind of long-term safety data. And really most children, if they get coronavirus will be absolutely fine. Um, so, you know, but I've already seen just how parents are saying, we won't tolerate this, right. you know, we, you know, and if, if we're, if push comes to shove, then we'll find alternative ways to homeschool our children or put them in the, you know, some kind of a co-op kind of a school, which we saw people being very creative when schools were just locked down for so long. I'm in California, you know, our kids just recently went back to school, you know, like basically a few weeks before school closes for the summer. Um, so I already saw a lot of these kind of pod groups that were forming on Facebook and social media and, and parents getting incredibly creative. So I think that, you know, is, is good because parents are already kind of primed right now from some of these draconian COVID measures to say, no, no, this isn't going to fly. We're not going to take this either. So might just yeah. see a mass exodus from tra traditional, what was, you know, traditional public schools. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. There has been a major kind of like uproar and all these warrior parents coming forward and, and saying enough is enough. And I mean, it's crazy that, you know, like most parents think that, you know, that they're, they're sending their kids to school is a, a place of safety, a place where they're going to be fed, a place where they're going to learn things and, and what, you know, they're, they're finding out, you know, sometimes it's, it's too late, even that, that their kids have been indoctrinated through these sexy, whether it's the sex educational program or the trans uh, alliance, you know, what was formerly the gay straight alliance, which has now been totally taken over by basically trans cult groups with, you know, booths and rainbow, everything and condoms and the whole thing. So um, yeah, I agree there. There's been a, I definitely, I've definitely seen it in, in the Southern States, this, this uproar and withdrawal and, and um, a lot of organizing, like there have been a lot of victories, you know, uh, I think during at least, you know, in, in Texas in the past few months, I've seen a lot of victories um, there, but yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even one of the women in the film, you know, she talked about how she found out that the school, the teachers, you know, the other kids were calling their child by their new name, uh, unbeknownst to her. Instead of in the olden days, you'd get a call from the principal's office, you know, saying, you know, your kid is saying that they're no longer Debbie. They want to be called Billy. Um, is that okay with you? <laughs> Now it's just happening and parents are none the wiser um, right. until they kind of just happen upon this information that this has been going on and they're just, they're angry, they're mortified. Um, and yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. 
and the name thing, you know, anyone's like, well, what's wrong with them changing their name? It's not in a vacuum, like a, a child wanting to change their name or use wrong sex pronouns. Like none of this is happening in a vacuum. It's all like a gateway to the exploitation of their bodies by pharmaceutical companies. Like it doesn't just end with Sally wants to be called Brian. Yeah. That's and the first, it's the first thing that, that tends to happen in the trajectory of, of these kids' lives, but it's not. Yeah. And to accentuate um, that point that it being sort of the gateway, you know, a couple of the experts in the film say, you know, our, our data shows that most kids that go on to puberty blocker end up going on to more and more, you know, interventions to fully transition. Um, so it's not like it, it, it's it's presented as you can stop puberty, you can block it, you can hit the pause button, you know, buy yourself time to think about things. It's like, no, it's, it's step. It's one of the steps in this direction toward, you know, full transitioning or whatever. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. What was the most We're really fun at parties? Huh? What do you Yeah, do? we are. <laughs> We have, so, we, I, I, yeah, no, seriously, I, I, any chance I get to talk about this, I, I'll take it. It's just, it's so unbelievable. And I, I think people are captivated, you know, I think people are ready to, to hear this. Um, yeah, but I tell you, I am a little bit nervous, you know, that the film is going to drop um, and I have no idea what kind of wrath is going to be, you know, heaped out. I told my husband the other day, make sure all of our cameras on the house are, you know, functioning and working. Um, you know, I hope there's no kind of, you know, one, we hope the film isn't canceled, you know, because, you know, within 24 hours, we could just be shut down. We've seen what happened to Abigail Schreier's book, you know, like, sorry, it's just, we're not going to sell that book anymore. It's hate speech. Um, but, you know, that this is not a rational debate. It's not a civil uh, argument that's happening in the public square. And if you dare to, you know, challenge the narrative um, that, you know, you, you know, I mean, poor Megan Murphy, she just got doxxed and had her whole entire site hacked and you know. it's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, thank you for, for bringing that up that this is, um, this is not just any topic that you're, you're making and the, the, the kind of backlash you've gotten from talking about the harms of the surrogacy industry and, and IVF and yeah. 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 Wow. You're doing and amazing you know. work. And, you know, we, we like to think that what we're saying and, and doing and talking about is just really reasonable. It's very rational. It's grounded in, you know, the best science and evidence that we have today, you know, um, and that there's no, ru- there's no rush, no rush to do that in any of this. Not like this child has, you know, terminal cancer or has been involved in a serious car accident and is hemorrhaging right now. And if we don't go into the OR and remove their spleen, you know, they're going to die. Um, that there really is time to just take a deep breath and really look at what's going on here. Um, wow. Well, what was your, what was the most surprising thing that you learned um, in the making of this film? Something you didn't know before? You know, Benjamin Boyce asked me that question and I said, well, I can't answer it unless you want to have like private paid premium content because <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. Um, 
because there were a few things that were just absolutely, you know, jaw dropping, um, shocking uh, to hear come out of the mouths of people that support this, um, that for various reasons didn't make it into the film, um, which is why I'm kind of seeming like I'm being cheeky because I don't want to get myself into trouble. Um, but uh, I guess. I think you're beyond that point, Jennifer. <laughs> I think you're beyond the point. I think you're, you're no, already. I didn't, out I didn't say what was said. <laughs> but I, I, I respect your journalistic integrity. Yeah. And I didn't say who said it. And, you know, much, much was interviewed that didn't make it into the film. So, um, uh, you know, for me, the most shocking uh, and it surprised me because I thought because of my pediatric nursing and the fact that I'm a woman and I'm a mom, uh, you know, I thought, you know, that it would shock me about the, the parents' stories and struggles. But, you know, again, because I saw so many years of parents struggling in hospital nursing that that this sort of fit into experiences I'd already had where parents are facing really ho horrible things happening with their children. But for me, it was just uh, it was just undone by the, the trans stories. Uh, and the heartbreak um, of them, not only the trauma that they'd had in their lives that brought the, them to this, but again, because my bias is, you know, behavior self medical professionals was that harm continued to them at the hands of medical professionals. Um, and, and then like lifelong harm, you know, you cannot, medically and surgically transition or think you're transitioning without having long-term, you know, damage consequences, harms done to you. Um, so that was, and, you know, and I always compare making a film and at this point in the film, you know, with being in labor for three days and you say, I will never, ever, ever do this again. And I'm right now because of where we're at with the film, getting ready to release it next week, going, I'll never make another film again. But then you get through it and you kind of go, yeah, it wasn't so bad. Let's do it again. So I think if I had another film in me, it would probably heavily focus on the stories of the detransitioner and just seeing what happened to them in the, the 60 minute segment um, right. that was aired a few weeks ago and the, and the wrath of the trans activists who could not believe that 60 minutes dared to include their voices. And, it, and I timed it, it was a seven minute segment. And they were not satisfied that they didn't get all seven minutes of it to beat the pro, pro, pro trans, you know, drum. And that, that 60 minutes actually had the audacity to allow those people to tell their story about how it didn't fix anything for them. And if anything, it made things worse. So, so yeah, that would be the biggest shock was how undone I was by those stories. Yeah. And I'd never met a detransitioner. So to actually meet them, um, which I always count as a huge privilege to be able to enter into people like that's life and have them give you um, permission to share their story. I mean, that's that's sort of the, the nerve thing you make a film is that people, whether they were in you were in favor of their point of view or not, that at least they feel that you, you handled their story fairly. Um, so it was really important to me to make sure that the pro voices, even though I disagreed with them strongly, I didn't try to punk them. I didn't try to set them up. I didn't have any of this gotcha stuff. See, you're really, you know, I don't, I don't like that. It does. It feels 
propaganda to me. It feels heavy handed because to me, the facts, the facts are good enough. They stand on their own. Um, mm. So I would love to see a, a lot more airtime given to these detransitioners and they're growing. I mean, that it's sad. It's sad that that number is growing. Um, but um, I hope we'll reach a tipping point where we'll stop doing this. So we won't, we'll have a, you know, less and less detransitioners because we didn't have this you know, transitioning um, happen. Right. Yeah. I know you just want to kind of weep. Yeah. I mean, I, I've even tried to stop using the word trans detransitioner because, you know, I mean, obviously it has a usefulness in this debate, but if we're talking about women who thought they were men, these are just our sisters, you know, like there is no, these are our sisters who have received the worst abuse from the medical system. I would say even beyond what like my clients experienced going through, you know, modern obstetrics and being coerced to have their babies cut out of them over and over and over and over again. I mean, not, not to, you know, not, not that we have to choose which one is worse, but I think we're talking about the duration of the abuse and the permanence of the abuse. I would say that the women who have gone through this system and indoctrination, I mean, yeah. deserve our utmost support, love and, and, and respect. And, you know, as, as they continue to come out in droves, we know that the system that put them through the ringer isn't going to receive them after. So who's left? I mean, where do they go? if all the therapists are constantly affirming, affirming, affirming where, where who can hold their stories, you know? And, and I guess the answer is us. We, we can, you know, for those who want their stories to be told, not to infantilize these women, these women are warriors. They've gone on to, you know, like the, the woman who was on um, 60 minutes, I, I, for, I forget her name. Um, she has a big Twitter account. I loved her. Yeah. She was just so strong and powerful and, I have a lot, I look up to her um, quite a bit, but yeah, you know, how, but, but, but also she seemed quite evolved in her kind of processing of everything, but, but where do the like freshly, you know, kind of uh, exiting women go and, and yeah, I, I think I know what, which stories I think specifically you're referring to, which is, you know, the women who have been sexually abused through childhood, you know, being really incredible targets for this kind of allopathic and medical um, framed as quote unquote medical um, treatment. Yeah. So I'm, I, I'm so excited for your next film. <laughs> the first one, this, this one hasn't even come out. I'm ready for the next one too. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for dedicating your, your life's work to um exposing the these harms and i am so excited for everyone to see your 
your film. Thank you. I, I really always appreciate chatting with you. I, I never sit with you without learning something. I always come away feeling like I'm a better person when I've spent time with, with you. Oh my gosh. Wow. Thank, thank you. I mean, I feel I, the, the feeling is mutual. I'm, I'm, I'm flattered. No, I'm still, even though I'm old, I'm still learning. <laughs> and yeah. I can learn, I can learn from even younger women like you. So um, it's a privilege. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit and visit my website, whosebodyisit.com.